You are listening to the Forgotten News Podcast. But before we begin, here are a few words about a couple of other podcasts that we think you should try. Every day, we're surrounded by media, books, movies, art, music, games, apps, podcasts, etc., etc. With this constant bombardment, it's easy to miss great media gems in the chaos. But fret not, you've come to the right place, my friend. I'm Jason, and I love media. I invite you to check out the Mixed Media Forest podcast, the podcast where I trudge through the forests of media to find hidden gems for you, the listener. Every episode of Mixed Media Forest is chock full of fun, reviews, nostalgia, positivity, news, rants, stories, and recommendations about all things media. Again, that's the Mixed Media Forest podcast, created on Anchor Podcasting app and available everywhere fine podcasts can be found. Give it a listen. It's what all the cool kids are doing. Are you a true crime junkie that's looking for a different perspective? Have you ever read about a famous case and wondered how it was possible that a defendant got acquitted? Are you interested in criminal justice reform? Do you often find yourself making extraordinarily inappropriate jokes while swearing like a sailor? Then the Getting Off podcast is for you. Hosted by us. Two real live criminal defense attorneys. Getting Off explains the legal reasons behind outcomes in famous trials and tackles tough topics in the world of crime and criminal justice. We use first-hand sources like trial transcripts, police reports, crime scene photographs, and appeals briefs to give you the information that the public rarely hears about when it comes to the criminal justice system. Our podcast isn't about carefully crafted musical interludes or obsessively edited narratives. Instead, it is a no-holds-barred, unedited, raw legal presentation by two lawyers that have spent over a decade each in the trenches. Previously covered cases include Casey Anthony, Michael Peterson, Jody Arias, and more. Subscribe to the Getting Off podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Do that to get off now. Welcome to the Forgotten News Podcast. This is your window to hear true stories from long ago. Stories that once made headlines. Stories that people thought would be unforgettable. Yet those stories were soon lost in the sands of time or were buried deep in the dustbin of history. In this podcast, we shake off the sand and dust from those stories and share them here with you as fresh as the day they were first told. And now, here's your hosts. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 28 of the Forgotten News Podcast. My name is Kit. My name is Jim. And thank you for joining us. Listeners, 
This episode is being released on March 8th, which is International Women's Day. Originally called International Working Women's Day, when it first began in 1908. Personally, I prefer the original name, but that's just my opinion. And here in the U.S., March is also Women's History Month. And we've decided that during this month, each of our episodes will feature the stories of unfortunately forgotten women from history, beginning with this episode. Now, listeners, considering everything that I just now said, you might be confused by the next few words that come out of my mouth. But I am going to start out by asking Jim a question. Um, all right. What's your question? And I apologize in advance for the fact that it is a very personal question. Okay. Have you ever been arrested? Actually, that's an easy question. The answer is... Nope. I have never been arrested. Well, suppose you had been arrested. Let's say for something serious, like a bank robbery or a murder, and you were absolutely innocent, but you didn't have any money to pay for a lawyer, what would you do? How would you defend yourself? Well, I'm not sure. I guess if I couldn't afford a lawyer, I'd need to just represent myself. No! Why on earth would you do that? Haven't you ever heard the famous quote from Abraham Lincoln? He who represents himself has a fool for client. Well, I never claimed to be a genius. <sighs> Listeners, I am evidently co-hosting this podcast with a total knucklehead. <laughs> okay, okay. Very funny. Ha ha. So, tell me, what's the solution, Miss Smarty Pants? Jim, let me give you a clue. Here in the United States, if you get arrested, but you can't afford to hire a lawyer, you automatically get a public defender. Basically, a lawyer who doesn't cost you anything, not even a penny because he or she is paid for by the state that you live in, or the federal government, depending on who is bringing the charges. Hey, that's awesome. And I think that is some very helpful information for our listeners. Because you can be the most law-abiding person in the world, but we are living in some very crazy times these days, and you never know what might happen to you even tomorrow. And on this episode, we will tell the story of the young woman who invented the entire concept of the public defender system way back in the year 1893. It is a truly inspiring story. And we can't wait for you to hear it. Now, Kit, 
let me ask you, before we move on, do our listeners need any kind of warning for the featured story on this episode? I don't think there is a need for any kind of warning. This is just a wonderful story and how sometimes one person with perseverance can bring about a major change for the better, despite all the odds to the contrary. This is a truly forgotten story, and it's a story that needs to be told. So, with all that having been said, on with the show. Hey, listeners, I am going to cut in and say one thing that Kit Karen was too modest to mention. <laughs> Kit will be narrating the featured story entirely by herself, which I happen to think is really appropriate for our kickoff to Women's History Month. However, please be aware there will be a few guest voices here and there representing various other people in the story. Our story begins in the year 1963. Yes, you heard that right. I didn't make a mistake. Our story is going to be told slightly in reverse. It will start in 1963 and then it will eventually travel back in time until it reaches the year of the turning point, 1893. First, as I mentioned earlier in this episode, here in the United States, it is taken for granted by nearly everyone that if you are charged with a serious crime and you cannot afford to pay for the services of an attorney, you automatically get a lawyer free of charge, paid for by the government. Whether it is the federal government, if you are accused of a federal crime, or your local government, if you are charged with a crime under the laws of your state. However, this has not always been the case. Sometimes, if you go to law school, or even if you only take a class in high school or college that deals with the topic of government or civil rights, you might learn about a ruling from the U.S. Supreme Court in 1963 called Gideon v. Wainwright, which basically guarantees that if you are accused of a serious crime, then you have a constitutional right to be represented by a lawyer. And that if you cannot afford to pay for a lawyer, then the same government that is accusing you must give you a lawyer at no cost to you. The case was decided unanimously, nine to zero. The court also decided that the right applied to both the federal and the state courts. This was kind of a radical concept at the time. But as a result, Public defenders are now everywhere. 
and almost nobody has the slightest negative thought about it. But the history of the entire idea of the right to a public defender did not begin in 1963, and it did not begin with Gideon versus Wainwright. It's a history that is very long and very obscure. However, it does have a starting point, and that starting point is one person. Our story on this episode is all about that person, a woman named Clara Shortridge Foltz, who was one of the first women lawyers in the United States. She was born in 1849 in Indiana. She put forward the idea of a public defender system in a speech that she gave at the Chicago World's Fair in 1893, and then she wrote it up as a proposed law, which she then mailed to various political leaders and organizations that she thought might be friendly to the idea. The concept soon began to spread. And just a few years later, in 1897, the law was being considered in over a dozen state legislatures. It was taken seriously enough that two of the most prestigious law journals in the U.S. had published scholarly articles written by Clara Foltz in support of her proposal. And later, she herself personally lobbied the members of the state legislature in New York. But at this point in time, the idea did not exactly have the nearly unanimous support that it has today. For example, the New York Times called it a female attorney's strange project. Another newspaper, the New York Tribune, mocked the entire idea. A ridiculous thing for the state to prosecute with one hand and defend with the other. The violation of its own statutes. Now, listeners, before we go any further with the story of the struggle to make the creation of the public defender more than just an idea, you may have been wondering... Who exactly was Clara Foltz? And how did she become so influential that a strange idea that she had proposed was being seriously considered as possible legislation in multiple states? In 1890, according to the U.S. Census, the U.S. had a total of 208 women lawyers. Clara Foltz was one of this tiny handful of women that had managed to become attorneys, despite the many obstacles and hurdles that were often put up to attempt to block them from doing so. However, nearly all of these women lawyers were simply obscure local attorneys who wrote wills and contracts, settled disputes between neighbors, and brought lawsuits on behalf of clients who had been injured or disabled in accidents, just like their male counterparts. But in contrast, Clara Foltz was a celebrity 
a household name. If you had been alive in the 1890s, you almost definitely would have known all about her. Her fame began when she fought to become a lawyer and to attend law school in Northern California in the late 1870s. She had been deserted by her husband in the midst of an economic depression. So, looking for a way to support her five children, Claire Foltz turned to the law. Since none of them were old enough to earn the milk that they drank, as she often said, she first led an effort to change the California Legal Code which then provided that only white men of good character were eligible to be lawyers. She convinced the legislature to take the words white and men out of the statute and to replace it with persons. Fultz then used the newly passed statute herself, surrounded by worldwide publicity, as she thereby became the first woman attorney to be licensed in the state. This first wave of publicity had barely faded when the next wave had begun, thanks to the effort by Foltz to attend the newly established Hastings College of Law. Clara was not alone. There were many lawyers who wanted to go to law school, because they had been admitted to the bar on the basis of either reading law or being an apprentice to an established attorney. And there hadn't previously been a law school in California. So if Clara was admitted to Hastings, it would be a chance for her to learn both the theory and the practice of law. But she was refused admission even though she was already a bar member, because she was a woman, and because the rustling of her skirts would disturb the other students. <laughs> Clara then did what any lawyer in her position would do. She sued them. <laughs> she successfully argued that since Hastings was part of the University of California, which had admitted women on an equal basis with men ever since its founding, she could not be rejected simply because of her gender. Then, for good measure, Fultz and her allies in the women's rights movement managed to win the passage of an amendment to the California Constitution, which declared... No person shall, on account of sex, be disqualified from entering or pursuing any lawful business, profession, or employment. It was the first such protection for women in the Constitution of any state. In addition, her widespread and steadily growing fame gave credibility to the public defender campaign because, having overcome nearly inconceivable barriers herself, she could not be dismissed as a mere theorist or crank or an overly sympathetic female or as someone who was simply ignorant of harsh realities. But where did she get this idea? How did a seriously undereducated single mother of five living in the far west of the United States 
long before women had political equality, come up with the concept for an entirely new way to practice law. First, the most important influence was her own experiences as a woman lawyer. And as an outsider and a newcomer to the criminal courts, she was able to clearly see many injustices that had long been ignored by the judges, lawyers, and others who regularly worked in the court system, sometimes for decades and decades. She said that these were men who quote-unquote were deadened in feeling by constant contact. As a woman, she observed such telling details as the soiled linen, the whiskey breath of the shyster, the innocents, boys and girls, as well as women and men, who were simply too dazed to understand their rights and legal position. Fultz also saw incompetent appointed lawyers at work. So it was not a great mental leap for her first-hand observations of the terrible injustices in the criminal courts to spark the idea that the government should be obligated to guarantee a fair presentation of both sides of the case. It was not only what she learned from her underdog clients, but how their position combined with her own as an underdog lawyer that brought her to the idea. Now, in this context, it is important to be aware of the history of the right to be represented by counsel. Clara often mentioned this history in her speeches and articles. Originally under the common law in England, many centuries ago, there was no right to an attorney for any person accused of a crime. This was mainly because, at the time, the death penalty was the punishment for the majority of serious crimes. And for that reason, the government was forbidden from prosecuting a suspected wrongdoer, unless the evidence of guilt was overwhelming. In addition, the prosecutor was legally required, in theory, to present all evidence favorable to the defendant, and the judge was obligated to protect the rights of an accused person in any serious criminal case. But in contrast, here in the United States, from the beginning, our judicial system took a completely different approach. Specifically, every colony guaranteed to all persons the right to be represented by an attorney when accused of a crime. And later, when those colonies became states, beginning in the 1770s, following the American Revolution, they all included this right as a fundamental protection for citizens under their state constitutions. Then, about a decade later, following the ratification of the U.S. Constitution, this right would be firmly established as a basic principle of the American legal system by the Sixth Amendment. But this written guarantee of the right to counsel 
was meaningful only to individuals who could afford to pay for a lawyer. However, most judges were able to clearly see that this was unfair, and also that those constitutional guarantees had never been intended to effectively create two different systems of justice, one for the rich and another one for everyone else. So for that reason, among others, it became common for judges to randomly appoint lawyers to represent defendants in criminal cases if the accused person was not able to afford one. But these appointed lawyers were not paid. However, nearly all attorneys considered it as a basic professional obligation. It was just something that came with the job. And even unpaid, they generally did their best possible effort on the theory that if they were successful in an appointed case, it might generate clients who could pay for their services. And once news of your victory had spread through word of mouth, in addition, if you were appointed by a judge who was famous or very respected, it was considered as a badge of honor among lawyers within the community. So you would definitely do the best job possible. Unfortunately, however, the appointment system was completely random and haphazard. And even though most judges would appoint lawyers to represent criminal defendants who were poor, there were many judges who did not. Also, it was not until the 1870s and 1880s that a handful of states passed laws that required the government to pay for the legal services that were provided by appointed attorneys. But in California, where Clara Fultz worked as an attorney, the legislature had specifically rejected a proposed law that required payment for lawyers appointed by judges. This was only a few years before she had been admitted to the bar. So, as a result, most of the criminal cases that she handled were ones to which she had been appointed by a judge. Or they were other non-paying cases that had been sent to her, usually by some other lawyer. And in a few cases, she was specifically sought out by some poor person because of her reputation as a friend of the poor. These were typically very desperate people accused of a crime. And these people were the only ones who were brave enough or frantic enough to go to the only woman lawyer in the state of California. Fultz was appointed especially frequently once she started to advocate for reforms in the criminal justice system including the creation of a public defender paid out of the same funds as a prosecutor and elected in the same manner. She noted that the judges of the criminal courts would openly ridicule her proposal for a public defender, but they frequently appointed me to defend those who could not afford counsel. 
I suppose this was intended as a sort of tryout of my own idea. There is a story that Clara often told, and which was central to her creation and reasoning for the public defender idea, and how her experiences as a woman attorney directly connected with the risks and the burdens of being an appointed attorney. In the year 1890, Fultz was in the courthouse in San Francisco to file some legal papers when a judge happened to see her in the hallway. He suddenly called her name and instructed her to come to his courtroom immediately, which she did. He then told Clara, out of the blue, that he was appointing her to take over the defense of a man whose attorney had failed to appear for the second day of the trial. Now, at this point in time, in most communities in the United States, any local attorney who walked into a courthouse for any reason was at risk to be appointed as the lawyer for any random defendant who was accused of a crime, but who did not have an attorney. And in this particular case, the judge sternly informed Foltz, The jury is here, and there is no time to lose. Thus, her latest client was a young Italian immigrant who barely spoke English. He was charged with arson. Clara once described him as the saddest man she had ever seen or met. She took her place by his side. Now, please take note. She was one of only two women in the courtroom. The judge, the district attorney, the jury, the witnesses, the court employees, the spectators, all men. The only other woman in the courtroom was the defendant's wife. Clara listened to the deputy district attorney deliver his opening statement. He promised to prove that the accused man had set fire to his own house, really a shack, in order to collect $500 in insurance money, the equivalent of almost $14,000 in the present day. This particular deputy district attorney was a man named Thaddeus Stonehill. He had a formidable reputation as a courtroom prosecutor. He was a combat veteran of two wars. In addition, Stonehill had been a captain in the Confederate Army during the American Civil War, but for some unknown reason, had acquired the nickname Colonel, and evidently nearly everyone who knew him referred to him by that unearned title. In contrast, the jury looked at Fultz with puzzled expressions on their faces. They had seen her unsuccessful efforts to be excused or for more time for preparation of the defense of the accused man. But the thing that the jury could not see was her determination. Fultz later commented, 
Although I had not spoken a dozen words to the man whose defense had been thrust upon me, I believed this defendant from the very outset. This state of mind is a habit with me. I believe in my client's cause. Claire proceeded to vigorously cross-examine the prosecution witnesses and set forth an alibi defense, which is a classic defense for an innocent man. For example, if you were so unfortunate as to be charged with a serious crime that you did not commit, where would you most like to prove where you were? You would want to show that you were at home with your spouse and children. And that is exactly the defense that Clara presented. But for the... Southern gentleman, Stonehill, the defense was his worst nightmare. He saw himself on the brink of losing at the hands of a woman and that the news would be on the street before the jury left the courtroom. And he would be a laughing stock in the courthouse, at the lodge and in the fancy clubs to which he belonged. So as the trial neared its conclusion, Stonehill turned to the ultimate weapon in the arsenal of the prosecutor. He was able to make the first and also the last summation to the jury. Stonehill decided upon a strategy of using his first speech to launch an attack on Fultz without even mentioning the evidence in the case. Instead, he told the jury to pay no attention to our quote-unquote slick oratory, pretty face, and feminine craftiness. (laughs) Then, in his final argument, when Clara had no opportunity to respond, he would then discuss the evidence from his point of view. It's an old trick, And lawyers for defendants sometimes call it sandbagging, especially if the prosecution decides to lay it on thick. Now, Colonel Stonehill raised his voice and then he informed the jury, She is a woman. She cannot be expected to reason. God Almighty created her limitations but you can reason, and you must use your reasoning power against this young woman who will lead you by her sympathetic presentation, reeking with the vilest guilt, to violate your oath and let a guilty man go free. The news had leaked that there was a good show going on in the courtroom, and so the room was packed with spectators by the time that Clara rose to give her summation. Fultz had decided that anger and accusation was not the best way to respond to Colonel <clears throat> Stonehill. Instead, she chose to use her razor-sharp skill of ridicule, along with metaphors, poetry, jokes, and wicked sarcasm. She mocked Stonehill's intelligence, sobriety, manhood, and his manners. 
Here is a small sample. Council has sat here for many hours, almost choked to suffocation with this mighty thought. The fact that I am a woman. Possibly it was the tremendous weight of this idea that sometimes made his step unsteady, his cheek more flushed, and his nose a deeper crimson. At another point, she said, Council declares with a curl on his lip that I am called the Lady Lawyer. I am sorry that I cannot return the compliment. I cannot. I never heard anybody call him any kind of a lawyer at all. Fultz then went on to say, I am that formidable and terrifying object known as a woman, but he is only a poor, helpless, defenseless man, and he wants you to take pity on him and to give him a verdict in this case based on that fact and nothing else. Finally, in a series of cutting observations, Fultz concluded, Now, let us take it all together. I am a woman, and I am a lawyer. And what of it? It is not a new or astonishing thing. I am practicing law in this city. I have offices in one of its largest buildings, and I go daily to and from those offices, sober and in my right mind. This was her second dig at the fact that Stonehill was apparently known to drink on the job. Foltz told the jury that he had not only insulted her, but them, by assuming they would let gender decide their verdict rather than the facts and evidence. I came into the practice of my profession under the laws of this state regularly and honestly, and I have come to stay. I am not going to be bullied out nor worn out. I ask no special privileges. I expect no favors, but I think it only fair that those who have had better opportunities than I, who have had fewer obstacles to surmount and fewer difficulties to contend with, should meet me on equal ground upon the merits of law and fact without this everlasting and incessant reference to sex, reference that is in its very nature uncalled for, unprofessional, and unmanly. Clara had shown Stonehill to be an overzealous prosecutor who would insult a lady and a jury in the same breath. Now, turning to the facts of the case, she accused Stonehill of deliberately persecuting an innocent man in his selfish ambition to win and also acting as the tool of a large insurance company that had complained to the district attorney's office about having to pay claims for damages in regard to some unrelated small fires in San Francisco. And then at this point, noticing that the jury was hanging on every word she said, Foltz pulled out all the stops and realized this was an all-male jury. Fultz had carefully thought out her argument with that fact in mind. 
In the name of the mothers who nursed you, and of the wives and maidens who look love into your eyes, I resent this hidden appeal to a supposed prejudice of this jury. I resent this unconcealed slur and covert innuendo that the presence of a woman in a case somehow contaminates her, and that her sex must militate against her client. And I resent it. For you, gentlemen of the jury, the implication that you are small enough and narrow-minded enough to bring prejudice into this jury box. Stonehill was utterly stunned by this smackdown and responded incoherently, rambling and sputtering about, quote-unquote, the firebugs who infest our fair city, and ending by declaring that the case was so clear almost as soon as they were handed the issues. And that is exactly what happened. Within only a few minutes after being given their instructions, the members of the jury declared the defendant not guilty. However, when Foltz told this story, which she frequently did, the verdict was not where it ended. She would go on and describe what happened next. Outside the court, I stood talking with the happy man and his clinging, loving young wife. They both appealed to me as if they were my own flesh and blood. I watched them as hand in hand they walked to their half-burned shack. The innocent man walking free into the sunset was the romantic vision behind the public defender idea. Foltz also found inspiration of a different sort in the personal attack that Stonehill had made in the courtroom. It caused her to realize exactly how much the idea of a public defender system directly pertained to her own self-interest. She already knew how much it would change everything for individuals accused of a crime to be represented by a lawyer who was endorsed by the state and backed by the resources of the state. But it now began to dawn on her that it would also change everything for the woman lawyer. If she was given an official title from the state, and if her representation of accused persons was no longer random and haphazard, but was instead transformed into a job that was officially created and paid by the state. In this way, a public defender system would elevate the representation of persons accused of crime so that all lawyers, especially women, could do the work in a way that was meaningful both to them and their clients. However, the trial that was most directly connected to our public defender idea was the case of James Wells that she handled in 1892. Now, before his arrest, Wells had been a successful real estate salesman in San Francisco with his own office and numerous clients. He was broke and in jail when Foltz defended him on a charge of forgery. 
And at that trial, she told the jury, I deplore the fact that the law does not provide for a public defender as well as a public prosecutor. I am in this case without pay and without hope of reward. Do you think this poor innocent man would have applied to a woman to defend him if he had the money to pay some distinguished male member of the bar? Now, that is not a proper argument in the present day. It might not have been a proper argument in 1892. So, if you happen to be a woman lawyer, please don't use it. Really, seriously, don't even think of trying it. (laughs) But in any event, for five days, Fultz and the district attorney were locked in heated adversarial combat. She objected to his unfair presentation of the case from opening statement all the way to his submission of improper instructions for the jury and an untruthful and misleading summation. The jury left the room at 4.20 in the afternoon to deliberate. Then, at 8 in the evening, they returned and gave their verdict. Guilty as charged. Mr. Wells broke down in tears, while Fultz attempted to calm him with comforting words. However, the most bitter aftermath of the trial might possibly be an editorial in the San Francisco Chronicle in regard to the case. The editorial attacked all women lawyers, declaring that their goal is to pervert justice and to soften the stern conclusions of logic, which is a tendency of women that has often been urged against voting rights. For their sex. Fultz immediately filed a forceful appeal of the conviction, and ultimately she won a reversal from the California Supreme Court on the basis of misconduct by the prosecutor, which is an extremely rare way to win any criminal case on appeal, either back then or now. The court ruled, in essence, that if a defendant cannot be fairly convicted, then he should not be convicted at all. It was not only an incredible victory for Fultz, but it became a landmark ruling in regard to the issue of misconduct by prosecutors in future criminal cases in California. In addition, in 1893, shortly after she had filed the appeal in the Wells case, Fultz was a speaker on the prestigious platform of the Congress of Jurisprudence and Law Reform, which was an important meeting that was held in conjunction with the Chicago World's Fair. And just to give you an example of the prestige of this occasion, please take note that the gathering included lawyers and judges from almost every nation on earth as well as nearly every notable attorney and legal scholar in the U.S. at the time. And it was here at this meeting that Fultz described her public defender proposal in detail. It was the first time that a woman lawyer spoke on the same stage with male lawyers. 
her speech received a standing ovation and an overwhelmingly positive reaction from the audience. At this point in her life, Foltz was 44 years old, although she claimed and looked a decade younger. She had given birth to her children when she was practically still a child herself. She was always beautifully dressed. The movement for clothing reform in the 19th century was probably the only reform movement which did not interest her. She dressed in high fashion whenever she felt it was required by the occasion. And in public, she always wore a corsage of fresh flowers. Her speech on the platform mainly took the tone of speaking truth to the assembled men, most of whom had never been in a criminal court. She described all the men who had opposed her over the past 12 years in a composite of the public prosecutor. And speaking almost verbatim from the brief she had just filed, she depicted the full power of the state against the accused. She then asked, but what machinery is provided for the defense of the innocent? She answered her own question. None. Absolutely none. Fultz then went on to say, For the lesser duty of convicting the guilty, the state has equipped and maintains an army. But for the higher one of defense of the innocent, there is neither counsel, nor officer, nor money. And those whose ability commands a law business are seldom chosen for court appointment. The appointees come from failures in the profession, who hang around the courts, hoping for a stray dollar or two from the unfortunate. Or from the kindergartens of the legal profession, just recently let loose from study and anxious to learn the practice. They have no money to spend in investigation of this case, and they come to trial, wholly unequipped, either in ability, skill, or preparation, to cope with the prosecutor, the man that is hired by the state. On the other hand, public prosecutors were usually skilled and experienced and were well paid. In many jurisdictions, the prosecutors were offered a bonus for each conviction. In addition, they had access to the manpower and investigative skills of law enforcement organizations. Having painted the scene plainly and harshly, she then outlined her solution. For every public prosecutor, there should be a public defender, chosen in the same way, paid out of the same fund, with the police and the sheriffs equally at his command, and the public treasury equally available to meet his legitimate expenses. Fultz believed that unless an accused had a similar level and quality of representation, which could be furnished by a public defender, the constitutional presumption of innocence was almost worthless. Now, there are two things to note about the public defender idea as proposed by Fultz. One is, the public defender would represent everyone who asked, not merely the poor. And everyone could have private counsel 
in addition to the public defense. They could have both. Because she believed that justice should be free for anybody and everybody. Innocent men should not have to pay for their own defense, bankrupting themselves and ruining their families in many cases. Secondly, she believed that all were innocent in the eyes of the law, and hence the presumption of innocence should be treated as a right. In addition, it was her point of view that there was no distinction between the actually innocent the factually innocent, and those who were merely presumably innocent. In her words, The law makes no such distinction, and so we should make no such distinction. Now, the other thing to note about the public defender idea, as envisioned by Foltz, is that the public defender was implicitly conceived as an oppositional figure. And so, in other words, her concept was more than an idealistic theory. It was also strategic because she foresaw or realized that a public defender would never receive the real respect and equality if they represented only the poor and the despised. Fultz wrote multiple articles throughout the 1890s which were published in major law journals and periodicals explaining and advocating the idea, including one in 1893 that was titled Public Defenders that was very influential in spreading the concept. But perhaps her most influential article was one titled The Duties of District Attorneys in Prosecutions, And in this article, she listed over 200 cases from throughout the U.S. where there were serious incidents of misconduct by prosecutors in criminal cases. Please note, this was many, many decades before any lawyer had the ability to find prior cases or precedents through automated or computerized research. And in her article, She pointed out that these 200 incidents were only a small fraction of the numerous cases that actually existed, because poor people rarely had the financial resources to pursue an appeal of their convictions. Fultz also wrote that, as a rule, district attorneys were overzealous in their desire to convict often sacrificing truth and objectivity simply to win. She attributed this excessive zeal to a system which rewarded successful prosecutions with public acclaim, but which substituted a losing prosecutor to public criticism or ridicule. She also noted the fact that prosecutors often held attitudes which interfered with the proper execution of their duties. Some came to believe that the accused were always guilty, notwithstanding any facts to the contrary. In addition, some district attorneys looked upon every conviction as a personal triumph, rather than simply being part of their job as a public servant. 
Also, at one point in the article, she cataloged the prosecutor's prejudicial methods, which she declared had resulted in an evil brood of appeals that choke the courts, irritate the public mind, and waste the public funds. She also spotlighted a long list of comments by prosecutors in criminal trials aimed at smearing the accused defendant and inflaming prejudice among the members of the jury. Here are just a few examples. Bloody assassin, butcher boy, black thief, terrible desperado, contemptible brute, black as hell itself, grocery bully, sugar-loafed, squirrel-headed Dutchman, midnight assassin, mean, wicked, low-down, dirty devil, and so on and so on, went Clara's list of snide personal attacks by prosecutors that she felt undermined the right of an accused person to have a fair trial. But her bigger point was that prosecutors had forgotten their original function to be dispensers of public justice, concerned for the welfare of all the people, including the accused. This heroic ideal of the public prosecutor at the time was almost as striking as a proposal for the establishment of a public defender system. Her underlying argument was that because prosecutors had fallen away from their original high ideals, Therefore, a public defender was necessary to balance the scale. Interestingly, in 1910, at the age of 61, Fultz was offered an opportunity to improve the situation, which she had criticized. She was appointed a deputy district attorney in Los Angeles and served as the first woman to hold the post. It is unknown how long she served in that position, but that's another story altogether. So let's get back to her public defender campaign. In 1896, she wrote a model bill which to establish a public defender in each and every county of the state who would defend any person who is not financially able to hire their own counsel and who was charged with the commission of any felony, misdemeanor, contempt, or other offense. The bill also set forth the qualifications, salary, and term of office for the position of public defender. She then launched a nationwide campaign for its enactment in state legislatures. The proposal became known as the Fultz Public Defender Bill and it became a national sensation when it ended up being introduced in the legislatures of 32 states. Unfortunately, despite this splash, it did not pass anywhere. But Clara continued for the rest of her life to offer her bill to any state legislature that she happened to be near to while on a lecture tour. She would simply go to the state capitol building and find a member of the legislature to produce her public defender bill. 
She was soon able to take credit for the first public defender office, which was created in Los Angeles in 1913. There were 12 additional public defender offices established between 1914 and 1926. Moreover, as a result of the stir over the unfair conditions in the courts and the need for lawyers, some jurisdictions and communities that did not adopt the public defender idea did start providing payment to appointed lawyers. In 1921, the California legislature finally enacted the Fultz Public Defender Plan after a long and hard battle in the legislature. And by the time that Gideon versus Wainwright was decided in 1963, nearly all states had established either a public defender system or specifically required payment of appointed lawyers in criminal cases. In the Gideon case, the United States Supreme Court declared that, quote, in our adversary system of criminal justice, any person hailed into court who is too poor to hire a lawyer cannot be assured a fair trial unless counsel is provided for him, unquote. Did you hear that? The United States Supreme Court ruled that any person who is too poor to hire a lawyer cannot have a fair trial unless a lawyer is provided. In other words, the court was saying exactly the same thing that Clara Foltz had said over 70 years earlier. Now, let's return to where we started. The conditions which gave rise to the public defender idea still exist, and perhaps even more in the present day. Very few public defenders have the resources to even give effective individual representation across the board, let alone to oppose the massive resources which the states tend to give to prosecutors or to lobby for an increase in money or employees to deal with the constant increase in caseload. For example, there was a recent article in the New York Times about public defenders in Louisiana who often need to handle nearly 200 cases each. Furthermore, we are living in a period of time in which there is great public pressure for courts and prosecutors to be tough on crime. This in turn, has led to efforts to cut funding for public defenders, as well as attacks on the basic constitutional right to a public defender. As recently as February of this year, 2019, in the case of Garza versus Idaho, there were two members of the U.S. Supreme Court, Justices Thomas and Gorsuch, who wrote dissenting opinions advocating a reversal of Gideon versus Wainwright. According to their point of view, persons accused of crimes who cannot afford a lawyer don't need constitutional protection because the federal and state governments have shown that they know how to do whatever is 
quote unquote, necessary to finance appointed attorneys in criminal cases. <sighs> yes, listeners, we all know that the government would never seek to cut corners when it comes to things that only affect the poor. Apparently, Thomas and Gorsuch are unaware of the nationwide crisis of underfunded public defenders, crushing caseloads, and the resulting denial of meaningful representation. Yes, listeners, two members of the United States Supreme Court. Ugh. Clara Foltz, who passed away in 1934, must be turning over in her grave. But, thankfully, the other seven members of the Supreme Court rejected the radical idea of reversing Gideon versus Wainwright. Perhaps it is time to renew the original understanding and purpose of the public defender idea. The vision of Foltz was a powerful, resourceful figure to counter and correct the prosecutor, to balance the presentation of the evidence, and to make criminal cases fair and just. And if anything, at this point in time, we should only be talking about improving the right to counsel and breathing life into the true meaning of representation by a public defender, as conceived by Clara as well as the ruling in Gideon. In the words of Clara Foltz, in 1893, Let our country be broad and generous enough to make our laws a shield as well as a sword. Let the criminal courts be reorganized upon a basis of justice that is exact, equal, and free. In return, the blessings will flow from constitutional obligations carefully kept, and government duties sacredly performed. That declaration by Clara Foltz remains a very worthy goal in the present day. And that brings us to the end of our story. Whoa! Who would ever have guessed that the entire idea of the public defender system was invented by a young female lawyer way back in 1893? Really? It's just stunning. It's one of those small bits of history that somehow just fell all the way down to the bottom of the memory hole (sighs) and now in the present day here in the United States we just take for granted that you will get a free lawyer a public defender if you are accused of a crime and you don't have enough money to hire a private attorney funny thing how a lot of history, whenever women are at the center of it, simply disappears. Just like that. Poof! 
and it's gone. I know. It's unbelievable how often that happens. It's incredible to think that if Clara hadn't come up with the idea, that there is a very good chance that we might never have had such a thing as the public defender system in this country. Wow. That is probably absolutely true. And in addition to everything else that we mentioned about Clara Foltz during this episode, she was not only a pretty remarkable person, but also she was unbelievably brave as a person and as a woman. She married her husband when she was barely 16 and then had five children in a fairly short period of time. Then, unfortunately, a few years later, her husband lost his job and couldn't find work because of some economic turmoil that was going on at the time. He panicked and just took off. But unlike him, she used her brain and found ways to earn income to support and feed herself and her children. She became a successful self-employed dressmaker and a part-time school teacher. Anyway, during the year after her husband left, she got the bright idea of becoming a lawyer because she saw it as an occupation that would basically be a guarantee of steady income. And the rest is history. (laughs) And speaking of history, I will mention one more tiny bit of trivia about Clara. In 1930, she ran for governor of California when she was 81 years old. And as you might have guessed, the entire focus of her campaign was women's rights and improving the criminal justice system, and particularly the public defender offices throughout the state. Unfortunately, she only received about 4,000 votes in the primary. So she obviously didn't win. Hey, Kit, I did a search on Google just to see if I'd find any interesting facts to mention regarding Clara Fultz. And here is something that knocked my socks off. The main courthouse in San Francisco is called the Clara Fultz Criminal Justice Center. Wow. I don't know about you, but I'm blown away. That's awesome. That's so nice to know. Although, I doubt that there are many people who go there who are even remotely aware of her name, or who she was, or why it's important for her to be remembered. Which is ironic, because Clara Foltz, although she was a mostly humble person, she wanted to be remembered. We know this because near the end of her life, she wrote, Quote, what I have sacrificed and what I have accomplished must be told. I look back across the misty years into the era of prejudice and limitation when a woman lawyer was a joke. 
Everything, in retrospect, seems weird, phantasmal, and unreal. But the story of my triumphs will eventually disclose that. Although the battle has been long and hard fought, it was worthwhile. Unquote. Personally, I am just happy that, thanks to Claire Fultz, we have a public defender system, even though there are some people, including two members of the U.S. Supreme Court, who apparently believe that if you can't afford a lawyer, and no matter how innocent you are, well, tough luck. And now, before we move on, we want to give an enormous thanks to our fabulous voice of Clara Foltz, as well as the voice of Colonel <clears throat> Stonehill and the voices of the judge of the California Constitution and the nasty editorial writers. And so take a bow and tell our listeners all about yourselves. Hi, I'm Christy, one of the hosts of Heartland Homicide, a true crime podcast. My co-host Kaysen and I focus on cases from the heartland of the U.S. You can find us on iTunes, Podbean, and most major podcast platforms. We explore some well-known and some not-so-well-known cases close to us. We are on social media at Heartland Homicide on Facebook and on Twitter at HRTLND Homicide. And while these cases may not be Florida crazy, they are cornfield crazy. Hi, I'm Ken Marsiglia, voice actor and voiceover talent. Uh, my website is uh, www.kenmarsiglia.com. And my YouTube channel, well, YouTube forward slash Helix VR. That's H-E-L-I-X-X-V-R. This is Roseanne, and I am the host of the California Dreaming Podcast, a show that brings you true crime stories with a few mysteries here and there that took place right here in my home state of California. We're available everywhere that you listen to podcasts. Jeremy Collins of the podcast we listen to Facebook group and host of the podcast by the same name. Hi, this is Jerry Kokich. I'm a voice actor, always working on my craft, and very thankful for this opportunity. Sandy Wong, the host of the Inspired Money Podcast with stories of wealth, living, and giving with greater impact. I'm true crime historian Richard O. Jones, exploring the scandals, scoundrels, and scourges of the past through historic newspaper accounts in the golden age of yellow journalism at www.truecrimehistorian.com. And now, listeners, at this point of the episode, we would typically bring you to the latest edition of our ongoing segment, police blotter, and court news. However, because our featured story on this episode was quite a bit longer than the length of our usual stories, we've decided to postpone the police blotter segment to our next episode. We apologize to the many fans of that segment, especially if you were patiently waiting to hear it. Yeah, sorry about that. And now, listeners, for the same reason, we will skip over most of the usual housekeeping things, except to ask you to leave a five-star rating and review on iTunes. Because, 
after all the work it took to put this episode together, I will only accept five-star ratings and reviews from here on out. (laughs) Other than that, if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, either follow the Forgotten News Podcast on Facebook and Twitter, or email ForgottenNewsPodcast at gmail.com. Please feel free to use any of those methods to interact with us. Be sure to follow me, Kit Karen, on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Kit Karen, spelled K-I-T-C-A-R-E-N. And in case you might be interested in hearing me tell mysterious and true crime stories entirely in whisper, then jump over to my podcast, Whispered True Stories. It is available on every listening app in the world. As far as I know. (laughs) And I think that is everything in a nutshell. And that we can wrap up. Right, Jim? I can't think of another thing. (laughs) Goodbye, everyone. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Have a happy International Woman's Day. And a happy Woman's History Month. Okay. And remember, history is no mystery. Thank you for listening to the Forgotten News Podcast. You will now be returned back to the present day, and we hope that we can count on you to join us for our next episode. cannot succeed without the help of women, nor can women be more truly working for the achievement of their own sex than when seeking to uplift, dignify, and purify men. It is the mission of women to ennoble the human race.